Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Tube to Table podcast, Learning to Swim, the basic strokes of how kids learn to eat. I'm Jenny. Heidi, how are you doing today? I am great. I'm great. We had a a good weekend. Um, How about you? How was your trip? Oh, ours was good. You know, it's always interesting to um, fly overseas with a toddler, but we made it and everybody's adjusted to jet lag. And um, yeah, you guys had a big bike trip recently. We did. Chuck and I went, my husband and I went to, um, on a two day bike trip where we got to, um, we rode out 40 miles and stayed overnight and went to a a winery and had good food and rode back. That's awesome. It was Uh, great. And you had good weather. And we had great weather. It was right before it got really hot here in Nashville. Um, and we were a little further north. Um, oh, near nice. Louis. So, so Yeah, nice. it was great. Yeah, it was great. Well, we um, I missed you guys, and I was excited to hear the, the episode that you and Jamie did. She's the best. Um, and I, I uh, am excited about this week's episode because it's one of these concepts that um, keeps coming up for us as we talk to people on the journey from um, you know, tube to table, getting their kids to eat after tube dependency. Um, and over the last couple of years, Heidi has kind of developed, like in one of our conversations, used this amazing analogy to kind of help explain um, what goes into learning to eat and what has to come first in a way. And so Heidi, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the topic of swimming as it relates to learning to eat. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, one of the things that I think confuses the two of us often is that most, one of the most common pieces of feedback we get from both families and medical teams when they're asking about tube weaning is the fact that the kids aren't eating yet. And so therefore they're not ready to eat because they don't know how to eat. And it's just such a confusing um, topic for people to wade through, so to speak. (laughs) Um, So we started really thinking about this and it just came um, as, as I, tried to explain it to a family one time that um, it, it really is learning to swim is a little and the learning to eat have some similarities that if you are standing on the dock and flapping your arms around, you're not actually swimming. You're just moving your hands around. And that is often what kids are asked to do. They're standing on the dock or they're sitting in their high chair um, with a nook brush or an empty spoon or um, other non-food things. And uh, people think that they're preparing them to eat. But really, if you're standing on the dock, flapping your arms around, you're just flapping your arms around. You're not actually swimming. You need to be in the water. You need to be hungry. You need to be intend to eat for um, that to make yeah. sense. And I love that because it's like without the water, no matter how much work you do to become a swimmer in a pool without water, you can't really learn how to swim. And that's how it works with hunger. Mm-hmm. Not that hunger is the key. Not that it's the magic bullet. It's just where it takes place. It's the water in the pool. You have to be able to be hungry mm-hmm. and, and eat for internal drives and reasons in order to, to really right. have it be a skill. And then 
you know, Heidi and I, in our discussions, I think I t- flipped it on its head one time and was saying, like, like it, the inverse also brings up some really interesting points. Mm-hmm. Just because there's water in the pool doesn't mean you know how to swim. Right. And so you still need to do the strokes and the flopping mm-hmm. around <laughs> and all of the learning to float and all of that stuff that goes into swimming. It just has to take place with the water, but the water doesn't mm-hmm. do it for you. So I think there's two big misperceptions that your analogy highlights, which is that learning to eat should happen before hunger. Mm-hmm. We hear that all the time. And then the other one is that hunger by itself. Right. People learned that hunger was important. So then they're like, oh, I'll get my kid hungry. Or a medical team will say, we'll just cut tube feeds gradually and that'll be enough. Mm-hmm. And, and we just really like to point out that neither are true, that you still have to learn the skills and the basics, um, but you need to do it in the context of hunger. Right. When, when we were thinking about this episode and planning for it, and of course, summer's coming and I'm thinking about swimming, um, I, I was thinking that there's even more similarities that Picturing kids learning to swim, hanging on the edge in fear, kicking their feet, afraid to put their face underwater, they're not going to learn to swim either. They're just going to be, you know, I hear people all the time talking about their stories of learning to swim growing up and how they were terrified and they hated it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they didn't become competent swimmers until they learned to trust the water Mm -hmm. um, and trust the situation and trust either their... um, their instructor or their parent or whoever was helping them to learn that, or they just got to learn to trust the water. And and that's also true with learning to eat is they're not going to let go and relax and let their body learn to do what it needs to do if they're terrified. That's so, so true. That That's another similarity that comes through. That with all trust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That trust and safety. And to just take it a step further, we know in the water, I was a lifeguard and I think you were, you a lifeguard. I was, yeah. yeah. For years and years. <laughs> um, we, uh, we also know that when people panic, even the most adept and skilled swimmers, when they're scared, don't do well. They, they make decisions that are poor and it puts them at, it puts their lives at risk, mm-hmm. quite frank, frankly, mm-hmm. in the water. And likewise, when you do things in the presence of fear and panic or lack of understanding around food, it sets things up for problems right. later on. And so I think um, it's just a really good point, I, which we, uh, you know, we talk a lot about trust mm-hmm. and we talk a lot about first getting rid of fear and helping kids feel safe, but it is the same as the water. It is. And, you know, the other thing that occurred to me as I was going through this thought process and in, in thinking about today is that, our body has some reflexive safety mechanisms in place for both, you know, for swimming, you fall in and you dog paddle and you, you know, flail about. And, you know, in some cases it is actually enough to get you started and get you to a safe place. It doesn't get you swimming, but it gets you to a safe place. Your body has some other things, gagging, pushing the food out. Those are safety mechanisms that your body has in place that are intentionally there that are part of the process and those movements can then be used to learn from our bodies are really designed to um, learn and become more competent in these skills and we just need to put them in the situations um, for the body's best learning to happen yeah we're supposed to push things away from we want our kids to go away from things that don't feel safe to them mm-hmm. that hot pan the electrical outlet the dog that's not their friend yet yeah. you know we want them to move away from things that are scary or have hurt them in the past or that they're worried about we want them to listen right. to that fear and, yeah. and and our instructions which they don't always do but right. i think um the same is true like we just forget that one piece that we want them to move away from it we want right. them to listen to that and our bodies were designed to protect ourselves kids mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But aren't they're not like 
There's not like some major malfunction if your kid isn't eating when they're tube fed or when they have a severe feeding challenge. Um, it actually just helps you target like right. cool where the attention needs to be paid. Right. Because if you put your attention on the fear and the trust and correcting all of that, what we know from, you know, overcoming fear and trauma and all of that stuff is that then, then you can blossom, then there can be skill acquisition. But if you skip over it, I'll use a personal example from my life. My husband was thrown into water when he didn't know how to swim. Mm -hmm. When he was a little guy, he's still terrified of water. And I love the water and it stinks. Let me tell you, because I would love to be on the water all the time and he can swim, but he doesn't really want to. And he's reluctant Mm -hmm. and, and not everybody, you know, some kids got thrown into the water and learned how to swim just fine. And it didn't stick with them in that way, but it did with him. And it does with a lot of people. And with food, we don't, what we do around food consistently around food sets the stage as we've talked about in many episodes for how kids relate to food later in life. And so if they learn that fear is a terrifying thing mm-hmm. that they need to overcome, that's the wrong message. Right. We want them to learn to trust it and, and understand it first. Well, and all those other examples that you brought up, the hot stove or the dog, in all of those cases, we automatically, in the moment of crisis, they should respond to that fear. But then we put in a plan in place to build back that trust in. And we know that's true because people own dogs and they cook and they yes, swim. You know, right. They do all of those things because there was some effort put into coming back around and building a safe relationship with those things and letting them approach it at their own rate. Nobody would ever put a child in front of a barking dog until they got over it. Right. Or stand in front of a hot stove until they got used to the heat on their hands. Right. That's right. not how you approach those things. But somehow with food, that message gets missed. Yes, so it does. not only do we need the um, the environment that's appropriate for learning it in, we need the water, we need the food, um, but then we also need the trust, and that's often skipped. And because kids don't start eating immediately, we assume there's a malfunction or a, a dysfunction of the body, and then we need to step in and take over instead of assuming that they're going through that process of of learning to eat and self-regulating and, and moving away. That is self-regulation and yeah. finest, right? Like this doesn't feel safe to me. My body doesn't need right. it. I'm not going to do it or my body doesn't know it needs it right now. Um, yeah. And so this kind of leads me into like this next area where people are like, okay, I get all of this. I get that mm-hmm. safety and trust is really important, but what about my kids mouth? What about their oral motor skills? Right. Um, a common question we get is about like, when is a kid from an oral motor standpoint ready to mm-hmm. eat and then like how does that fit into this kind of swimming pool that we're talking about and a lot of therapists not knowing what else to do because the kids aren't eating it's a really common step to start with exercises and probably some of that is related to physical therapy and that's how physical therapists do it and some of it is probably related to the research that we have about adults with um, eating problems but the problem with adults is that it's related to an injury or an insult. They were eaters and now there's a problem with their nerves and muscles related to whatever the problem was. Was it a stroke or a brain injury or, um, you know, a a degenerative disease, whatever those things are, there's some really good research that out there that says that exercise helps. So good therapists who know their research, pick up that research and apply it to kids. The problem is that kids aren't learning, relearning an old skill 
they're learning a new skill, which they've never done before. So this isn't rehabilitation for our kids. This is habilitation. This is learning a skill, which is done differently, um, which is one of the reasons why we chose that analogy of, of learning to swim, because they're learning a new movement and a new skill. And the way our body does that is you take one skill and you build on it and morph it into another skill. Um, and you continue to build on strengths. If that one was successful, then you build on to the next step. Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, it's really great. So like all of the strategies we need to help improve the motor mm-hmm. skills in our mouth, if they're done with the first things first, with the trust mm-hmm. and the water in the pool and all of this stuff, what we know also from the physical therapy literature right. that's coming out in the last decade or so is that we learn, and we talked about this two or three episodes ago, that motor learning, re- motor learning and motor relearning, what we're learning, what we're learning about those mm-hmm. things now is that it's always better in the actual context. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing physical therapists that used to work on walking in a gym on a line of tape or near, you know, uh, uh, with a starting point and a finish point, not now working in kind of like a simulated situation mm-hmm. like walking down a kitchen aisle in a small, you know, uh, or not a kitchen aisle, a grocery store aisle in a small simulated grocery store in a rehab setting right? Because, or working on walking to the bathroom when the, the person has to use the restroom. Those things become what we, what we know now is with, even with adults that are relearning skills, that the context is way right. more important than we thought mm-hmm. it was. And so, um, it's just a it's so valuable to remember that there is no research to suggest and we we as we've talked about Heidi and I love to look at the data and the research that's out there there is no research to suggest that for habilitation for new learning of skills that the oral motor kind of like rote exercise even if it involves food like five bites on this side four bites on that side is effective in the same way that learning about those mm-hmm. skills are in the context of meaning and hunger. And so um, it's just a, it's just really helpful to remember because I think that's the number one, th- right. like, it's the number one way that most therapists function. There's usually exercises involved. Mm-hmm. Almost every single kid that comes to us has been working with tools and exercises and has been told that the kid has to eat a certain amount before they can reduce tube feedings. And it's actually the other way around. It's, it's a little bit backwards. It is. Um, and, you know, you were mentioning all of the um, brain development things, all of the rehabilitation and habilitation literature on, on helping kids but and the importance of application. Um, but I think the other thing is just motivation. If the kids are involved, we all know as parents and therapists – and people who work with kids, and frankly, people who work with adults too, as the boss of the company. If someone wants to do it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's better than if you have to make them to do it. Right. And it's it's just learn differently and learn better, and it's more lasting uh, yeah. if you work on it with a motivated participant. Yeah, and like I'll use a, another kid example of something. What we know, like just I, I'm an OT, but I also, in addition to my two weaning clinical expertise, which is what I do m- with most of my time, I also run a company and we see kids with all sorts of um, different stuff, not just feeding challenges. And what we know about our kids that have like handwriting challenges is that we can work on handwriting worksheets till the day is done. But if we help a kid make a list for packing to go to their best friend's house, 
or if we help a kid make a grocery list for their birthday party, or if we can have them write a letter to their best friend that moved to Wisconsin last year that they miss, it's so much more, Mm -hmm. um, it's so much more successful. They're so much more invested in it and therefore they're more willing to do the activity and the results are better. Then they're really doing it. So that's another, it's, it's really true across areas of development that the strategies we're using should be embedded in meaningful activities, which I love as an occupational therapist, because that's kind of our jam. That's what we love to do. And we, um, just to jump back to the question that you had asked before about what kind of skills they do need to have in place for the kids to be able to move ahead, we do need to know or have a pretty strong suspicion that the kids are safe in just swallowing at least one consistency. So that can be a swallow of a liquid, a swallow of a puree, something that the mouth isn't involved in having to move it around too much. I mean, the the mouth is a little bit part of it for sure. Um, But they don't need to be chewing anything yet. They don't need to be clearing the spoon. They don't need to have any of those things in place. And the reason we know that to be true is because that's the way every kid learns. Mm -hmm. They start with one consistency and um, the body gets a a nice pattern down and a nice rhythm down with that consistency. And of course, in a typical way, it's, it's the liquids Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you thicken it up a little bit and then it's purees and then you make it a little bit thicker and it's purees and the body adapts around a little bit. The mouth feels it and says, Oh, what I did last time isn't quite right, but I can, make a few little changes and then it works this way. Yeah. And then suddenly kids get a lump in the puree and this even happens with typical kids and the body says, Oh, that's not swallowable. And out it goes Mm -hmm. um, because that protective mechanism comes in. But as they continue to get lumps, they finagle around and their mouth figures it out. And there's this nice feedback loop that happens and they make adaptations and and the lumpier stuff um, starts to go down and then they start playing around on solid foods and, and there's different reflexes in place for solid foods, but they, they mouth. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more, I think about baby led weaning because this yeah. is a great thing to bring that baby led weaning in and the philosophy behind the baby led weaning. So Jamie, or yeah. Jeff, why don't you talk about that a little bit? This is a good time for that. I think. Yeah, I think it is. So Heidi was just kind of describing the traditional, um, what we considered kind of the traditional approach approach to helping kids transition to solid foods, which is, liquids, purees, um, and, and then that kind of progression that she just described. Um, and what I did in my family and what I, we do a lot, um, in our tube weaning program, but also in, um, feeding kids that have challenges is work on something called baby led weaning, which for those of you who aren't familiar, um, instead of starting your children on purees or baby food, you start your children with chunks of softer, real foods. You'd kind of skip that whole baby food stage. So just a quick example, when my son was six months old, he had a piece of a very ripe pear, like a wedge of a very ripe pear. And then when that, but it's the same, it's the same progression Heidi was just talking about. We went from pears that were the same, like soft. And then he learned how to kind of negotiate that and don't, you know, like every kid has a hard time with new foods. It's, it's, they should, cause it's different and they should be protecting themselves if they don't understand what it is. And so there's some sputtering and spitting and trying to figure it out and funny faces and all of that. But then we progress to like different varieties of foods and soft solids. Then very soon after that, we progress to things like, you know, breads or pastas. And then we progressed to like 
I don't remember the exact order of it, but like dipping some of those salads that he had tried into other things. So there's that mixed texture, which, you know, is kind of the equivalent of what Heidi was describing with the lumpies, the lumpy purees. Um, and so um, one of the nice things about baby lit, any, any type of whatever works for your family, one of the nice things about um, keeping in mind the swimming analogy is that you don't start out doing like the butterfly, right? It doesn't matter whether you're doing baby led weaning or a traditional puree approach. You don't start out like doing the front crawl. You start out like having a second or two of being able to be buoyant in the water. You mm-hmm. have you start out with little tiny baby strokes. You start out with a float. <laughs> you start out with a noodle or whatever. You don't you don't just go to the swimming. And I think a lot of times people with kids that got older because they we all do, but because they had the tube that they expect to, what we see a lot is they'll help a child get hungry and then they'll be like, oh, we tried it. He didn't eat the food we offered. And it's like, well, nobody does, you know, like nobody starts out eating large quantities, no child, baby led weaning or or whatever starts out eating a large quantity. It's a really gradual, slow process because they're building on their strengths. They're learning, um, they're learning skills and nothing happens fast. You can't, you know, you can't, um, Heidi's a marathon runner. And I know that you can't, you don't start out at, at 26.2 miles. Right. You know, you start out with your small training runs and then you build yourself up. And it's the same with any type of learning to eat. Just a quick, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's a little bit about what we've learned as we progress with kids through this tubing process too, is kids need some breaks. Yeah. You don't just make them hungry for seven days and just figure out that they're just going to keep swimming, keep swimming, keep swimming, keep learning, keep learning, keep learning, because nobody was going to keep you in the pool until you learned how to swim the butterfly. Yeah. Or nobody was going to say, you got to just keep running like Forrest Gump until you, <laughs> until yeah. you somewhere. You do need to give your body some rest and you need to rest on your successes and you need to feel good about what you've done in order to come back the next day and learn something. Yeah. And that's not to say there's not challenging moments where hunger's confusing and kids are like, learning new skills and frustrated for a minute, just like my son was frustrated when he was learning to eat that pear because he wanted to put it in his mouth, his little chubby hands couldn't get it in there and it was slippery and all, you know, like it's normal that it's inefficient. It's normal that it's not, um, it's normal that it's hard. Also yeah. in the beginning, that's what development is like. It, it's a little, we forget that when kids don't have tubes, it isn't a straight line. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason for kids with tubes, we expect it to be. Well, and, one of the reasons we've learned by being in the room with so many kids is that they get stuck in different spots. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm remembering specifically the little guy that we worked with in Illinois that was determined that his food was going to be fried chicken. Mm-hmm. And we talked through, you know, all this process that we just talked through, he crammed all this fried chicken in his mouth and then he sat there like a chipmunk. Right. And he was so mad. <laughs> he didn't know how to do it and swallow it down. And he was so angry and I couldn't do it for him. Mm-hmm. Had to figure it out. His mouth had to figure it out. And, and it did. Um, but I didn't want, just because we're talking about this as if it's such a smooth process to make people feel like this was a smooth process. Yeah. And that example is, there's another swimming analogy here is that there was lifeguards in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, we, both of us happened to be in the room during the fried chicken episode (laughs) and it was so cute and sad, but he did learn how to eat fried chicken and he loves fried chicken. Um, but, um, but the lifeguards are parents. They are therapists. They are hopefully your medical team. Um, you know, ideally it's mom and dad or whoever the people that would naturally be feeding your child are. Um, but 
in, in, when it's hard, it's okay if you have some, you know, a bigger team of lifeguards. So our job is to keep it safe and to keep that kind of just right challenge. Mm-hmm. Because we don't want it so challenging that kids fall apart. And we talked about this briefly in another episode as well. But we there was this misconception when kind of two-weaning hunger-based, which I reject the term just a little bit because it implies that it's hunger is the answer. Um, and we tend to fall into that categorization, which is okay. I get it. We, it's Hunger is a big part of what we do. But hunger, um, there was this idea that getting kids really hungry and really frustrated and really bottomed out and kind of desperate was necessary to get them over the hump. We're not talking about that. And what we found as therapists that were there from the beginning when that type of tubing came to the United States is that it's not necessary either. Not only is it not ideal, because again, like the analogy of my husband being tossed into the water, we don't want kids' first experiences with food to be cruddy like we want them to feel no we don't want them to feel scared we don't want them to eat because they're falling apart and they are just in in a terrible state we yes there's some kind of franticness that goes in for it to every child when they're when they're hungry um and hangry but we don't want them at their wits end and so i think that's just another thing to keep in mind that there are there's a, there's a difference between starvation and hunger Mm -hmm. there's a difference between helping standing there and walking with your child, helping them through the challenging times of learning new skills across the board or doing it for them or just standing there and not doing a thing. There's kind of three options. And what we're proposing and what we see we have seen and our data internally shows is that you got to really walk the line. It's a little bit of a dance. You got to keep them challenged, but they can't be constantly challenged. They can't be falling apart. And so, um, uh, we always encourage people, you know, try to keep them in a challenging place, but use your instincts as a parent, because if it feels like it's too much and it looks like it's too much, it's probably too much. Um, and that doesn't mean you go back to full tube feedings either. It means you help them. You take the edge off. There's someone in the room that is helping keep them safe, um, like the lifeguard in the pool. And I will say that's probably among the most challenging things that we work through. For sure. In tube weaning is the balance of what are their oral skills? What is their hungry level? How do all those pieces fit together? What's the family stress level? And, you know, there've been times when it's been extremely challenging and there's been times when we wish we could go back and repeat, you know, take the words back into our mouths or, <laughs> but you that's know, the norm. But yeah, that's what happens. It is. It's the norm. And so I guess the message, the take home is it's supposed to be confusing. Most of the time, these kids can't tell us exactly what they need in every moment or exactly what they're feeling in a way that could help us make a decision about how many LMLs to put in their tube and when. And so it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong if it feels like a dance, if it feels like it's three steps forward, two steps back, or 25 steps back <laughs> some days. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It, the nature of childhood development is it's inconsistent. It's variable. Their children. It isn't easy and it's new and hard. So um, just expect as you move towards tube weaning and you start to consider kind of the swimming pool analogy and getting kids hunger, just expect that it's not a straight line. It shouldn't be. And remember that your job isn't to do it for them, that your job is to make it safe. That's awesome. Yeah. And on that, I think I think we're going to wrap up because I think that was um, 
uh, a really awesome point, Heidi. And, and remember that if you're confused about how to keep your kids safe, there's help out there. Um, you know, we're certainly available to help people that are really struggling with tube weaning for kids that are really stuck. Um, but also your medical team, you know, rely on them. And if they don't have all the right information, check out our show notes from today and other episodes. And, and there's a lot of great resources out there. And sometimes just sharing that can help the whole team help keep your child safe. So we'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us today. Bye, Heidi. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week. 